Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of Dagish America Presents. I am your host, Ben Harl, and I'm so happy to have the opportunity to talk to you about the industry that I work in. Last season, we spent some time discussing phosphine. We covered all sorts of topics, including the history of phosphine, fumigation techniques, using phosphine safely, applying the fumigant, monitoring for efficacy, and the potential for phosphine resistance in certain insects. If you haven't had a chance yet, please go back and give Season 2 a listen. In Season 3, we're going to talk about why we fumigate in the first place. To control pests. We'll introduce you to the most common pests you'll encounter in our industry, the main quarantine pests we need to control for import and export goods, some inspection and monitoring tools and techniques, and a whole lot more. So, let's not waste any time getting into it. Our first guest is no stranger to our topic. Pat Hoddle is the Technical Director at McLeod Services, a Terminex-owned company based in Chicago, Illinois. And Pat is going to introduce us to a particular insect we see on a daily basis in our industry, the Indian mill moth. So, please help me welcome Pat to the podcast. Pat, thanks so much for agreeing to be on our podcast. I really appreciate it. Pleasure to be here with you, Ben. All right, great. I've known you for a long time, but for those uh, folks who may be listening to this that don't know who you are, could you just kind of uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I started my career uh, in pest management in college as a student in entomology. I attended State University of New York, uh, Farmingdale, where I was a student of Dr. Austin Frischman. I later went on to University of Georgia to finish my degree in entomology, took a little bit of a detour uh, and went to work in Bermuda, which is where I first learned about fumigation. Uh, There we tented structures for drywood termites. After working for Bermuda Pest Control, I returned to college, completed my degree, and I eventually joined McLeod Services, which is now part of the Terminex brand and also a company that specializes in food processing pest management. Um, Because of that, I was able to learn about commodity fumigation through my uh, work experience with McLeod about 45 years of pest management experience now, uh, including fumigation experience. And um, on a personal note, I'm married and have three sons. And one of those sons is Ben Hoddle, an entomologist as well. Yeah, I've met Ben. He's a, he's a pretty brilliant uh, young man. And it's yes, really nice to hear that, <laughs> that <Yes>. entomology <laughs> has become a family affair. Uh, yes, that's it terrific. has. So not only a career, but uh, that opportunity to share that career and that love of entomology with um, at least one of my sons. Another son is a horticulturist, and so we get to talk bugs, too. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) That's certainly wonderful news that you have uh, some folks in your family that you can uh, discuss things with. (laughs) That's always kind of a challenge with those of us who, who work in pest control or entomology is finding people who are interested in what we have to say. So <laughs> that's always nice. <laughs> Outside the industry, that is. Right. Um, and don't mind don't mind the discussions on bugs. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. 
All right. So as you know, uh, this season we're talking about kind of stored product pest identification, and we wanted to kind of drill down and talk about specific pests. And I know that you know with your career, you've you've had a lot of interaction with stored product pests. So I couldn't think of anybody better to talk to about this. But I wanted to talk to you about what I would consider to be one of the most prevalent stored product pests that we actually see in. Uh, the United States, and that's the Indian meal moth. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about the Indian meal moth and just why it's so successful here in the United States. Right. So it's a ubiquitous pest and excellent at exploiting our, our resources. It's the most common, as you mentioned, store product pest, particularly of packaged foods in the U.S., and often associated with retail stores for that reason. However, it doesn't stop there and can be found in multiple uh, links or, or facilities within the food chain. So we see them on farms in bins, milling industry, food processing, distribution, and even homes. And I, I don't think there's another, in, in racking my brain, another stored product pest that I can think of that is as common in those different areas of the food chain. So the Indian moth is very successful in, in most of those different elements. It's also important is the fact that they are commonly found living. And I think this is a, a key behavior or factor as to their success is the found living in the exterior environments around the facilities that we service. So we'll commonly see them in pheromone traps. We'll do exterior monitoring with pheromone traps, not just interior, but exterior. And it's not uncommon to find Indian meal moth in those exterior traps. I've done trapping at my home, the exterior of my home, and found Indian meal moth, and I live in suburban Chicago, so found them there. And the fact that they're on the exterior, the fact that they can fly, that mobility enables them to spread easily. And I, I can't think again of another insect, perhaps um, in the case of this exterior connection, other than maybe warehouse beetle, that you would find as common as Indian meal moth. Warehouse beetle be more common than Indian meal moth, but certainly Indian meal moths are on the exterior and have that potential to invade indoors. Sure, yeah, and I would agree with you. And and the thing that I find kind of interesting, you talked about how widespread they are in all these different uh, areas that you can run into them. And I've worked with pheromones uh, myself in the past, and I always find it funny. <laughs> you know, if you work with pheromones and you're not wearing gloves, or if you accidentally get some of the pheromone on your skin or, or on your clothing, and then maybe perhaps go to the store afterward, or you go to certain locations afterward, you'll start having Indian meal moths kind of fly around you. <laughs> They'll find you because you have that pheromone on you because you've been working with pheromones, say, in, in maybe a distribution center where you're hanging pheromone monitors. And then you leave and on the way home, you go to the store. And if you have some of that on your clothing or on your hands, like I said, you'll have Indian meal moths that'll find you and they'll kind of fly around you in that erratic pattern that they have. And I just kind of find it interesting that you can see them in all these different areas that you maybe wouldn't expect. Yeah. Always fun to 
try to think about what people are thinking as these moths are, fo- <laughs> are following you or flying around you. And yeah. as you mentioned, you know, super supermarkets, retail stores, but even restaurants, you know, uh, several of the restaurants used to carry kind of the, the peanuts and those peanuts gets dropped on the floor and have problems with Indian meal moths. So had that happen on multiple occasions, not just uh, retail level. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you kind of give us a little bit of a brief description on what the Indian mill moths look like? So um, approximately 15 millimeters in length as the adults and the immature stage, the larval stage will be similarly sized as it matures. Um, has that very characteristic bicolored wings, which makes it fairly easy to identify. You have that buff colored front of the wing with the coppery reddish brown color on the, uh, the end of the wings. Really fairly easy to identify from that standpoint. There are some other stored product pest moths, of course, that can exist in facilities, don't have that bicolored wing. The coloration, the scales that are responsible for that coloration can wear off. But even when those scales are gone, you can typically still see on the adult Indian meal moth that bicolor, you know, maybe just dark and light, but you can still often see that that it's Indian meal moth by that bicolored or or change in color on the wings. Yeah, and the Indian meal moth is really about the only stored product moth that has that really severe coloration on the wings. I think it really makes them stand out more so as compared to some of the other stored product moths that we typically run into. Yeah, there is a moth called meal moth that's a bit larger than Indian meal moth and it has kind of that similar reddish brown coloration but it's closer the banding or that dark color is closer to the head that side of the wing and so that's one way to for sure identify that and it's certainly not a very common although you may see it in facilities it's certainly not as near as common as indian meal moth right yeah yeah one of the other things i think that makes it distinguishable almost immediately is the flight pattern. You see them in flight a lot in areas where you have high infestation and they have this really erratic flight pattern. They don't fly in a straight line. They kind of fly in this really weird erratic circular-ish motion, uh, Mm -hmm. which really makes them stand out in my opinion. Yeah, kind of a maybe a zigzag almost. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the most common questions that you receive from the industry Uh, pertaining to Indian mill moth control? So I would say, you know, probably the most common and also the most challenging question that we get has to do with origin of an infestation. So they may start by asking developmental times because they're ultimately trying to determine if that Indian meal moth that was found, that infestation was found, originated in their facility, could it have come in from a supplier or just where that infestation started? And um, of course, that can be a challenge, right? In, in trying to trace back where that infestation originated. And we, we can talk about life cycle and we could look at the stages that might be present. But ultimately, it can be very, very difficult 
um, we can get lucky and the facts and the clues come together, but that's often not the case. We may have uh, exit or entrance holes that can be looked at microscopically for where did it come in or out of the packaging. Some of the stages, I think I mentioned this already, but some of the stages present might be a clue as to how uh, long that product's been infested and try to link that to source. Packaging penetration studies, more complex and more detailed solution there or, or uh, ability to find the source uh, can be done, uh, but that's going to take time. So it's, it can be challenging, but we, we look at that and that's, I would say, the number one question we get is or are questions that are related to trying to determine source. Right. I, I would counsel our clients that having good pest management program with and including the elements of a good inspection of incoming goods, quality monitoring program, very, very essential. And then the documentation to back that up is very, very important and can be very useful when we're trying to establish the source. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on all of that, Pat. I also think that one of the things that makes it so successful is its reproduction. Do you think that you could add anything about kind of the, the reproduction process that the Indian mill moth has and, and how that lends itself to its success? Yeah, so females can lay uh, hundreds of eggs and under ideal conditions, we can get develop developmental times as short as 30 days going from egg to adult. And uh, also been documented that we can get 60-fold increase in populations in one month. So if we look at Illinois, for example, where I reside, the larva, larval stage, that last instar of the larva is the stage that will overwinter, spend the winter in that stage, pupate in early spring, I should say. And then we'll start seeing adults emerge around April. So if we think about that 60-fold increase occurring on a month-to-month -month basis in hundreds of eggs being laid by that female early in the spring, we can develop enormous population sizes come August and September, and that certainly tracks with what we see. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that definitely lends itself to the Indian moth success. I mean, that's a, a massive procreation, you know, hundreds of eggs and, and that, that cycle. That's, it's impressive <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. And another uh, factor in their success is that they feed on such a wide range of different foods. They're more of a generalist and therefore can find um, more food resources to exploit. So grain products, of course, chocolate, we'll see them in cocoa beans, dried milk, pet food, dried pet food, dried fruits, spices, seeds is another big one. And um, we've even found them recently on either, I don't know if I want to call it a new agricultural product or one that's made a resurgence is dried hemp uh, in yeah. large numbers. And couple that with that broad range of foods that they'll feed on, the fact that they are good at penetrating into packages, that female laying the eggs, she'll lay her eggs near a food source, 
if there's even small openings, small holes, that small first instar larva that comes out of that egg can get into that packaging. The later stage larva will uh, also be capable of chewing into packaging. So very, very good uh, penetrators of packaging and considered good penetrators of packaging. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that makes this insect very successful. <laughs> and and I, I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like they're difficult to control because they're not. They're actually fairly easy to control with, you know, conventional pest control with, you know, and, and there's a few different options that we have on the market. But, you know, the level of procreation and the success rate that they have that really is what makes them kind of a formidable foe. You know, it's not necessarily how difficult they are to kill. It's how many of them there are and how fast they procreate that makes them difficult to control. And um, there's also some defenses, biological defenses that the larva have, such as the fact that they produce webbing. And that webbing can help protect them from desiccation, can help protect them from predators. They also have that capability, and this certainly relates to control, the fact that they can go into a, a diapause when conditions are adverse. And that's what we see happening when they're overwintering, that larva uh, is di in a diapause stage. And so that can affect our ability to control them when they have that reduced metabolism. And I'm glad that you mentioned the webbing that because that's something that, you know, we, we talk about the webbing that they create uh, often as an identifier on whether or not you have a stored product pest or an Indian meal moth infestation in certain areas. But why they create the webbing, I think, is something that's not often mentioned. So you kind of explaining what the webbing's designed to do, I think, is pretty interesting. Yeah, and there's also some chemicals within that webbing that signal to some chemical cues to the female not to lay eggs there. So another way of um, enhancing survival by not laying those eggs, that webbing is, is signaling to the female that there's larva already there, utilizing those resources and signal to her to lay eggs elsewhere. Wow, that's pretty fantastic that the insect has that as an option to do, <laughs> you know, to kind of alert, hey, we're already occupied here, go someplace else. That's interesting that they use the webbing to do that. I've started to allude to some of the different control methods that we can use against the Indian male moth to help control or eliminate them from certain areas. Is there anything new in the form of research that's being conducted right now that you think the audience should know pertaining to the Indian male moth? So, Ben, I'm going to spring one on you here. Okay. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> uh, I thought it might be fun uh, if I give you some different research scenarios okay. and ask you to determine if these are true or false. Uh-oh, you're putting me to the test. I like this. <laughs> Hopefully I do good. <laughs> and uh, to note, not all of these are going to be necessarily recent uh, reports. Okay, some of them may be some older research, but I have some uh, prepared. Okay. And if you're, if you're game to listen to them and see if you can identify if this is true or false. Oh, I, I absolutely love this, Pat. Yes, I'm, I'm definitely ready. I'm ready to go on this. So okay. hopefully I do okay. But yeah, I'm I think sure th this will. sounds fun. So let's let's do it. Okay. So uh, first one I'm going to talk about is has to do with some research out of Rice University. 
in Houston, Texas. And I thought Rice University was a good place to do some stored product pest research. In this case, they performed some experiments with Indian meal moth and it probably more of a social uh, study versus an entomological study, but they looked at Indian meal moths and their cannibalistic behavior. So um, although we think of them as grain feeders and, and may not think that they would feed on necessarily each other or um, non-vegetable related materials, they do, and, and, and shown in this study, they can be cannibalistic. They also found that over time, by restricting the movement of the larva, that they could decrease cannibalism, that actually it kind of was the reverse of what that you might expect, that they would become generation after generation less cannibalistic is the more uh, restrictive their movement was. So if they were forced to live together, uh, they tended to be less cannibalistic than if they were through the type of food that and, and restriction that the food created uh, were able to move more. So Ben, do you <laughs> think this is an actual study and is this true or false? Well, I my initial thought would be that this is false. However, uh, it's so interesting that I'm going to hazard a guess and say that it is true. And it is true. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so, and, and I should mention that uh, we will provide the, the uh, citations for these references for the ones that are at least true uh, for the audience to follow up on if they'd like to read more about it. Yes, thank you so much for mentioning that. Yeah, we will, uh, in the description uh, of the this podcast episode, we will, uh, I'll put the links in the description of the episode. So for those of you who want to go and look these studies up, um, I highly suggest you do so. I can already tell by this first one that there it's extremely interesting data. So I definitely highly suggest that any of you who are interested go find those links in the descriptions and or look at this research. Very good. Okay, so I have another one. That's our second one. And this concerns parasitic wasp. So parasitic wasp, um, there was more than one study that you can find on the use of parasitic wasp for controlling Indian meal moths. But in this case, they had found a new species of wasp. And um, this was at the University of Illinois in Bartlett. And they named the wasp uh, Trichogamma tanaka after one of the creators of the 1961 sci-fi film Mothra. And um, they found that this new species of wasp was successful in controlling Indian meal moth, uh, specifically in grain bins in research trials. So Ben, <laughs> true or false? I have no idea, so I'm going to hazard a guess and say that it is false. You are correct. Wow. Very <laughs> two good. Two for two. <laughs> <laughs> so I made this up. University, there is no University of Illinois Bartlett. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, and the reason I put this one in, there, there was a, a recent um, naming of a nematode 
after a actor, Jeff Daniels, based on his role in the movie Arachnophobia. Oh, yeah. And they actually named that new nematode that preys on tarantulas after Jeff Daniels. So it <laughs> uh, didn't happen with moths <laughs> or, or parasites of moths. But I, I added that one in. So that one was false. And my last one, uh, this is uh, researchers at Oklahoma State found that her horizontal landing surface was important factor in ability to capture more Indian meal moth adults in pheromone traps. So they tested diamond traps with pheromones at different uh, levels in a room, found that the ceiling and floor traps actually caught more. Um, and, and so their recommendation, and they also found that traps closest to walls uh, performed better. And so in their conclusion, they recommended that floor level and wall mounted traps as ideal placement for pheromone traps. So true or false? I'm going to say that this is true. Very good. Hey, I'm three Very for good. three. No, no uh, <laughs> fooling you, Ben. <laughs> Good. So that is true. That was work by Nansen and Phillips, uh, Tom Phillips, at, when he was at Oklahoma State. And again, um, we can provide those uh, links to those studies for the those that attend the podcast. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for this little, uh, little trivia. This was fun. <laughs> I like that. But yeah, I'll have to go and look at look at some of that research myself. Uh, you know, I'm always interested in studying up on a lot of the research that's done. You know, and the Indian meal moth's been around for a long time, but this just goes to show that, you know, the research continues. You know, we're always looking for better ways to control these insects, even though they've been around for a long time. And, and even though we do have successful means of control right now, that doesn't mean that we can't find better ways or maybe more e ecological ways to control some of these pests that you know, are a little easier on the environment, uh, it's a little safer for us, and maybe a little bit more efficacious. So, uh, you know, the research continues. Um, so speaking about control, you know, and the control methods that we have currently, what methods would you recommend right now that we use to control Indian mill moth? So, as we discussed earlier, the importance and the fact that they're found outside and the importance of prevention and control um, exclusion. So, making sure that doors are properly sealed, vents that uh, might provide access are screened. So, looking at exclusion from the standpoint of making sure that we're not getting moths coming in from the exterior. Exterior pheromone traps, as I also mentioned earlier, can be important in tracking population trends, can also help predict what those interior populations might look like if we believe that they're coming in through the exterior environment and uh, can also be helpful in doing that analysis of is it an infestation that is coming from the site or did it come from let's say supplies that came in so making sure the facility is properly set up as far as exclusionary methods and then the other part of that is inspection of incoming goods and making sure that we're not bringing those in from an outside supplier 
As far as control methods that, that we might use, uh, the use of pheromone, mating disruption products has, I would say, revolutionized really how we do Indian meal moth control in the facilities that we service. And we use those products when we can. Sanitation, building design and maintenance will all be important. And one of the, or some of the most recent infestations that I've uh, been called upon to help with in my job um, included most recently as last week, a, a facility that had, and, and I harp on this a lot, are rack legs of warehouses. Oh, and yeah. the difficulty, yeah, the difficulty of sometimes cleaning those. So there, there are some that are designed better than others, but this particular facility had four-sided rack legs with openings in it, right? There are openings there present so that the, the horizontal supports can be adjusted, but those holes can allow product spillage to occur. And this facility had those four-sided rack legs and very, very difficult that product can get in there, but it's very difficult for somebody to try to clean into those holes and openings. And we've seen that in more than one situation where we've got product, powdered product accumulating inside those rack legs, can't really clean them very effectively or certainly challenging to clean. And we can get not just Indian meal moth, but other stored product past. And the same is true for um, sometimes support structures that are used in and around equipment. If you've got hollows and not well sealed equipment supports, Indian meal moth issues there as well. So building design uh, in the first place, uh, to design it right, to make it cleanable, maintaining that structural integrity of the building, and of course then sanitation all fit into the control programs. And then I would say, of course, inventory management, first in, first out, system of stock rotation, making sure that things are tracked. Sometimes we'll see facilities where either samples, quality assurance samples are kept and maybe not discarded or, or tracked as well as they should be. Uh, seen situations with rework not being tracked and used as it should be. So managing in proper um, management of inventory is also critical. Last point I want to make, Ben, ULV space treatments are sometimes used for control and um, kind of a tip and, and something important for folks to keep in mind if ULV is the control uh, or part of the control program to be implemented that the adults, um, ULV space treatments are going to kill those exposed stages and the adults are most active at night. So whenever possible, scheduling those ULV treatments when those moths are most active. And flight, also part of that activity and, and making the most of the treatment is occurring at temperatures of 65 degrees Fahrenheit and more. So cooler temperatures, you may have less activity, less opportunity to kill if those ULV treatments are performed at cooler temperatures and at certain times of the day. 
Yeah, I'm, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't think about when they're actually performing a ULV ultra low volume fogging treatment or, or any kind of treatment for that matter, or even the inspection is when you're going in to look for things based on the insect's circadian rhythm or, mm-hmm. you know, when they're most active. You know, all creatures follow a circadian rhythm, their normal waking hours, their normal sleeping hours, their normal feeding patterns, their normal reproduction patterns, so on and so forth. And so being able to track them via the circadian rhythm or their particular circadian rhythm is extremely important. So I'm certainly glad that you mentioned that. And we just talked about before the call started, right? Your your jet lag, right? Yeah. Of, of being <laughs> in Australia and um, your circadian rhythm being interrupted. Oh, very much so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I only have one more question for you, Pat. I always like to end these conversations with this type of question. We have a lot of new fumigators coming into our industry or or new pest control folks coming into our industry. And so I always like to give people an opportunity to kind of give some advice to that new fumigator or that new pest control professional about how to perform their jobs better. So what advice would you give a new fumigator about identifying and controlling stored product moths? I would start with references, some uh, recommendations regarding some of the references that I use routinely. I think the NPMA field guide is one of those excellent tools that are, because you can get the app, right? You can put it right on your phone or tablet is really outstanding not just the quality the quality is there of that reference but also the portability of it one of my favorite books and i I don't we just talked about australia a little bit there one of my favorite books and i'm not sure that it's promoted as much in the u.s is insects of stored product and its author is david reese and he's a post-harvest researcher out of australia really really excellent book one of my favorite books on stored product pests so i I do recommend that and um, it's particularly helpful if you're trying to we talked a little bit i think about indian meal moth versus some of the other stored product pests this book does a really good job with photos showing those differences and how you might be able to identify Mediterranean flower moth versus almond moth, et cetera. So I would invest and I'm sure you can get it through Amazon. Yeah. And that's, that's the only difficulty we have with doing this over a podcast is it's audio based. So uh, we don't have the opportunity to share photos for pest identification. So we have to base this all on just conversation, unfortunately, but I'm glad that you mentioned these resources because you're absolutely right. These resources are invaluable when trying to identify these pests. They will include photos of the larval stage, the adult stage. They'll talk about their biology. They'll talk about control methods, all kinds of different information. I'm more familiar with the NPMA field guide than I am some of the other resources, but I've used the NPMA field guide for uh, many, many years, not just the app, but also the printed one. (laughs) You know, uh, years and years ago, I was given one with one of my first pest control jobs. They, They gave us a field guide to keep in our service vehicle for pest identification when we drove around. And, and I can't tell you how many times I actually cracked that book open and used it to identify pests. Yeah. Yeah. And again, the, you know, if you get the app, right, the portability of that is really 
very important that you have that if you need to look something up out in the field. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also a fairly new uh, fumigation book, and it's more of a study guide, but I think there's value, and especially somebody new coming into fumigation work. It's called Non-Soil Fumigation, and it's a book that's produced by PERC, and that's P-E-R-C, which is Pesticide Educational Resource Collaborative. And I, again, I have a link for that and I will provide it, but I, I think it's an excellent reference for new and experienced fumigators and um, hard copies can be ordered. And again, we'll provide that link. Yeah. Yeah. We'll provide Are links you, to all the research and, and all of the documentation that we've discussed. Absolutely. Were you familiar with that book, Ben? I'm not. No. Okay. No. So I'm looking forward to doing some research and and perhaps uh, reading some of these books myself. So I appreciate you sharing this with me, and it's always great to talk to folks on this podcast because uh, it affords me an opportunity to learn about the industry even more as well. And again, the goal here is for us to learn as much as we can. We should never stop learning about the industry. We should never stop learning control methods. We should never stop learning new and inventive ways to inspect and treat and identify. I mean, all of this is so important to our industry because new and innovative uh, ways to do what we do are found every single year. So it's it's very important. And uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to looking up some of this information. And that book, um, I should also mention that it, it was a collaborative effort between industry. So several industry folks helped edit and and write the book, as well as pesticide educators in the university level. So collaborative effort, and I think I think a, a, a good job and a good reference to have. No, that's great. So yeah, and like I said, we'll we'll share all these links in the podcast description and and I definitely encourage everybody go and do some self-research on this and find you know the research papers <laughs> from the trivia and then as well as you know go in and find links to these books so you can get an opportunity to read them. Yeah and, and then I did want to make one mention on fumigation itself although there's been low-level resistance on the part of Indian meal moth to phosphine fumigants, for example. I think it's important to keep that resistance concern in our minds and make sure that we don't develop any kind of high levels of resistance to the tools that we have, including fumigants in that toolbox, by proper planning and executing an effective fumigation. So important to keep resistance in our minds and making sure that we're following labels, of course, proper planning, making sure that we have effective fumigations, that we're doing the planning that's necessary for effective and safe fumigations in order to make sure that we don't have issues with resistance to our fumigants or other tools. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that because you're right. We have to make sure that we follow the labels. The labels are the law, of course, when we're using any insecticides or fumigants, whatever the case is, uh, and then using them in a fashion that's going to help protect the molecule and also be as efficacious as it can be. You know, we have to be responsible pesticide applicators and, and responsible fumigators to make sure that we 
protect these molecules into the future. So thank you for sharing that. I think it's a very important portion of what we do. Yeah, and you know, I, I think resistance, although we're highlighting fumigation here with any of our other types of pesticides that we use, we have to keep that in mind. And we're, we're seeing resistance on the part of, and historically, right, we've seen resistance uh, occur um, with the different classes of insecticides or rodenticides that we're using. And so uh, just resistance needs to be in the forefront of our minds and making sure that we are practicing strategies to reduce that potential for resistance to occur. Yeah, yeah. And, and yet another reason why the research continues <laughs> on ways to control the uh, stored product, well, all of the insects that we actually come into contact with in our jobs. You know, it's very important that this research continues to help us find better ways to use existing products to curb the chance for resistance and, and maintain efficacy, but then also look for new product lines that can maybe be more efficacious or faster or, again, safer for the environment. Well, that's it, Pat. I certainly appreciate uh, you taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk to us today and help educate us on the India mill moth. Glad to be with you today, Ben, and thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you. And we'll talk again soon. Okay. Take care. I want to thank Pat for giving us some insight into the most common stored product moth that we see in our industry. Understanding the physical characteristics of these pests will not only help us identify them, but will also help us dictate the best method available to control them. On the next episode of Dagish America Presents, we'll be talking about another group of pests that we see daily, stored product beetles. And remember, if you have a question you'd like for us to answer, feel free to email us at podcast at dagishamerica.com. And you can also find us on our website at dagishamerica.com or on all of the main social media outlets. And so, until next time, I'm Ben Harl, and I hope you have a safe and terrific day.